Hey, welcome to the NATO Sessions. I'm comedian NATO Green. This podcast is a production of 3200 Stories, the digital venue of the San Francisco Jewish Community Center. My guest today is geographer Rachel Brahinsky. She is a professor at the University of San Francisco, uh, studying uh, San Francisco, race, uh, urban spaces, politics, housing, all that, land use. Uh, interesting stuff. And I have known Rachel for coming on 15 years, probably since she was a reporter for the Bay Guardian. I was one of her sources um, and we became friends and stayed friends. And she has studied uh, a lot of stuff about San Francisco. I think a lot about the history of San Francisco. And um, I found this conversation kind of hopeful, actually. Like we tend to think about gentrification and cities as, you know, communities being crushed by development. That is a story of defeat and uh, what she, what I got from talking to her is that people resist and that the resistance, we may not know about it all the time, but is frequently uh, preserved in the buildings and parks and laws and policies that are negotiated as settlements to development battles in the past uh, and that uh, we may not know those histories, but they're there. Um, and, uh, and so I, uh, the stories that she tells about the development fights over the years around the Bayview and the changes in the Bayview Hunters Point and the Western Edition and the mission, uh, really, uh, reflect that the story of San Francisco is a story of capitalist development and greed and conquest, but also resistance and community and perseverance. So dig into this conversation between me and Rachel Brahinsky. There's been a public conversation happening to some extent about like rising economic inequality and there's sort of like we 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 hear about and, and talk about and click on articles on social media about like global these big global like trends about you know whether there is or is not a hollowing out of the middle class or indebtedness or you know poverty or whatever and what is the place of cities in that conversation? It's a good question. I mean, the, so the, I mean, part of why, so, so really the goal of this podcast is to have every guest say that's a good question. Right. It's, it's about NATO's questions. The reason these programs feel kind of vital and important and the reason why it's fun and, and, and feels urgent too is because cities are kind of, are more and more the center, not, you know, not only are they more and more the population centers of the world. So the world is now more than half urban and it's becoming more and more so. It'll be two-thirds urban in another 20, 30 years or so. And so this is a major shift that's happening in human history, that people are moving into cities and staying there. And and is that good or bad? It, it isn't either of those, um, exactly. But, it, but in terms of inequality and the kind of role of place and cities and inequality, cities are where... Well, it, I guess the reason that was a good question is because it, it, it brings up a complicated answer. Um, but the, the, uh, the thing is that the production of places, the production of cities and their suburbs, which then are often absorbed into the city in lots of different ways um, in terms of labor markets and, and, and other things, um, and, and some people would argue that, you know, our kind of hinterlands, you know, Gray Brecken will talk about how the, uh, the fringes that, you know, that, that, that you should think of Tahoe and the Sierras as essentially part of the city, 
not that they're part of San Francisco, but that San Francisco is feeding off of and destroying um, the countryside. And, and for a place, you know, for a city like San Francisco or you know, a place like the Bay Area, that kind of extension, the countryside goes very, very far, far beyond our kind of immediate ring. But the production of those places um, in a kind of capitalist economy is productive of inequality. So you know, inequality between people is totally tied into inequality uh, within places. So both like segregation in the city and then um, differences between city and fringe, you know, the city and the suburbs. How that plays out has changed historically and keeps changing. Um, but there's this sort of roving band of inequality, places that where you can kind of see what you think of as poverty moving. And, and you know, it used to be the inner city and then uh, you know, we, we all talk about gentrification now. So you see, you know, people of greater means moving into cities. And so then where does, where do the places of poverty go? Well, they move to the fringe and then they move to the suburbs. That's what's happening now is suburbanization of poverty. Um, and so there's inequality in the landscape. There's inequality, inequality both in development and in the ways that people inhabit the landscape. That's some of your answer. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's, it's interesting to sort of that on the one hand we have these big conversations about like, you know, the the top one percent controls the you know x massive and growing percent of the wealth of everybody else and whatever, but that's not that's not evenly distributed in space. Um, you know, right. like right. when we talk about that, that's basically we're talking about five places more or less. You mm -hmm. know, or something. I mean, it's it's a very short list of places sure. where that's occurring, uh, and then there are places like you know. Uh, my wife is from New Mexico, you know, where there are parts of New Mexico where like, you know, they would love to get some gentrification. <laughs> uh, so, um, well, and that's a thing. So I know you and I have talked about this before, like that the idea that, you know, and, and I used to say this more freely that everybody wants a little bit of gentrification, but not too much. And then it started bouncing back at me. And I, and I think I'm changing how I, how I want to talk about that because I think, if, if what gentrification is, and, and if you dig down to, you know, what's really, gentrification isn't just the coffee, nice coffee showing up in your neighborhood. Gentrification is, is the displacement. And so if gentrification, you know, investment is one thing. And kind of, you know, everybody wants the, or no, maybe not everybody, but, you know, everybody wants the good food that's accessible. And, the, you know, everybody, and many people want the good coffee or whatever it is. Right. You know, I you find want the, the gentrifiers annoying, but their snacks are delicious. Their snacks are delicious, yes. But, but, the, but gentrification really is not just about coffee showing up. It's about people being forced out of their homes and about out of their communities and about a retail environment where, you know, your small uh, little local business that's been there for 20 years has to go because rent doubles and triples like is happening all over the place now in the Bay Area. So if that's gentrification, we don't all want just a little bit of it. Right. And so there, there's degrees of investment. Everybody needs a little bit of investment. You know, Bayview Hunters Point nobody has ever said, no, we don't want investment in Bayview Hunters Point. But the way that it has been happening, I mean, Bayview is, is, is slightly complex, but it, you know, it's this very uneven thing where suddenly the investment that is coming in is uh, imbalanced with the community that's living there. So when you have you know, a new restaurant coming in that's very expensive, it's nice to have you know, new energy and new investment and new food and a place for some people to work, but who is it serving and how is it serving them? 
Right. I mean, I, I, I have, I, you know, I do a joke in my act about wanting a little bit of gentrification. Uh, not so much that I get evicted, but enough that I can get creme brulee. Sure. Um, and, you know, there was, when I was, I, 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 I sort of thought about like, you know, seeing the mission, for example, and the waves of people, you know, and like there were the, sort of the, the working class Latinos and then artists and punks and then lesbians and then yuppies. And I was like, it would have been great if we could have just stopped at lesbians. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a difficult public policy uh, position to take. Um, and so I like I even I sort of talk about gentrification because it's part it's it's how people understand the conversation. But I agree with you. Like I, I find it so analytically sloppy mm-hmm. and encompassing like these very subjective and aesthetic things and a certain amount of white guilt with like an you know and a preciousness about small business that may or may not be based on anything. Right. And also like displacement and inequality and whatever. Um, so, uh, the you wrote your dissertation about the southeast. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the what's what's the the story that you think is is compelling there? The, the so, southeast of San Francisco specifically. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one to clarify. But I mostly was writing about Bayview and Hunters Point, or Bayview Hunters Point, the names of which have kind of evolved over the years, but. The story there is a long, really hundred year or more story of kind of isolation from the rest of the city. And it's a long kind of multi-ethnic story, actually. So it's, you know, the people have the idea that Bayview is a black neighborhood and has been um, since World War II, at least. And it's actually been a multi-ethnic neighborhood for over a hundred years. And it was majority black for some of that time. But before that, it was, you know, it was, it's been a working class forever. Bayview was where Butcher Town used to be. So, the, you know, before there were butcher shops and before there were grocery stores, there was a place in every city where all the really nasty slaughtering would happen. And as, um, as, as a cautionary note, because you said Butcher Town, yeah. someone is going to open a very fancy artisanal butchery called butcher town out yes. there <laughs> yes and because we're on 3200 stories there will have to be a kosher one somewhere uh right and yes. and people will have like curly cube mustaches and wear vests and stuff awesome <laughs> carry on yes <laughs> um and the and the you know so so when when people think about racism in san francisco these days i think the conversation is more, you know, more focused on uh, the blackout migration and maybe, I, I don't know, it's it sort of, it depends on what neighborhood you're thinking about. But in the 19th century, when the main population that was despised by mainstream San Franciscans was, were the Chinese immigrants. Um, Hunter's Point was a place where Chinese immigrants were able to have a shrimping business, major export business back to China. Um, and so from that time on, Hunter's Point has always been the place where things that things or people that the mainstream of the city wasn't that interested in seeing, but you know, it's okay if it's happening kind of down over there. Um, and so then, you know, the military uh, took over the shipyard and when the uh, black population moved into the Bay Area during World War II for war jobs, shipyard jobs and other jobs as well, there were really only a couple of places in San Francisco that they could live. Um, partly because of restrictive covenants, so uh, regulation, you know, leases and, and mortgages that said no 
blacks need apply essentially. Um, which, you know, and, and those, you know, th there's a long history of that in the U.S. It's not as um, written about in San Francisco, but that was kind of standard um, across the country that there would be whole sections of cities where um, certain people couldn't live. And, there, you know, there's stories of, of Willie Brown not being able to buy a house in the western side of the city later on um, and other uh, famous African-Americans. But so, so during World War II, blacks moved to the Bay Area and they wind up living in the Fillmore and in Hunters Point for the most part. Um, and in Hunters Point because they're near the shipyard where a lot of them were working. After the war, when, as in many cities, there was this kind of sense among white San Franciscans of like, oh, okay, now you can go home. You know, all the folks who had moved here to work were happy to have left um, the South where they came from. And so here they were. And then it gets really complicated. I don't know if you, have you seen the uh, James Baldwin documentary um, about his visit? So in, in 1963, uh, James Baldwin comes to San Francisco and he was, he was in the Bay Area for a talk, I think at Berkeley, something like that. And the KQED um, media team hears that he's coming and they grab him and they say, will you come with us for a day and wander around San Francisco with us? And so they drive through Hunter's Point and they talk to young, basically teenagers, African-American teenagers in Bayview. And then they drive up and down Fillmore Street and take, you know, video of people living with Baldwin doing his, you know, very intense commentary about the state of race relations in the U.S. And interviewing the teenagers, you know, asking what they think, you know, why, how do you feel about San Francisco? And, and they're angry, you know, they're not able to get work. They feel hopeless and kind of enraged and so this is this is the you know post-war black San Francisco experience um, now and the reason I was initially interested in and and felt it was important to focus on Bayview Hunters Point and, and to write about it because at, at the time when I first wanted to nobody was talking about it at all nobody was writing about it once I started my project several other people did so there'll probably be a, a bunch of books about Bayview <laughs> in another couple of years um, but is is that it's also become this kind of place where San Francisco has placed a lot of its hope for the future of housing, of growth. You know, there's not a lot of undeveloped land in San Francisco and our housing crisis is perpetual. Um, and so the remaking of the shipyard has been kind of this centerpiece of like, this is a way we can, you know, put in 10 to 20,000 housing units, all sorts of retail, but it's been super complicated process because it's a super fun site and then and parts of it are super are designated as a federal super fun site um and there's been this kind of long debate and which means they're super polluted super polluted yes exactly could you so uh like at the at the high point of the shipyard as a functioning shipyard what could you describe what the community was like that came together around it in the the kind of heyday of production at the shipyard i mean the you know during during world war ii there were multiple bay area shipyards so there was one that kaiser operated this is where kaiser's Healthcare comes from um, in the city of richmond and there was a shipyard in oakland and then in mare island in the north bay too the san francisco shipyard wasn't the biggest but it was very busy and like all of them kind of operated basically 24 hours a day during the heat of production. Um, it wasn't the biggest, but it was very important in a couple of really uh, key ways. It was the place where 
the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were put together and shipped out from the U.S. So it was kind of this international node. Um, it's also, also the place where when ships were brought back after having been uh, subject to radiation and explosions in Japan, um, that they ships were brought back and decommissioned here. And then some of that, the waste that was... Uh, Tossed was tossed out uh, the, in the Farallon Islands. So it went from Bayview Hunters Point out to the Farallons, and it's now under there, kind of glowing up at you. If you go uh, check, out, check out the islands, you can't actually see it, but it's glowing up at you anyway. Um, but, and, and, you know, there, I have a colleague who's, who's doing research on the toxic stuff, particularly. That's not my specialty, but what, some of what she's found is um, this kind of vast. It's this sort of vast sense of not knowing where anything went, you know, and so so the uh, radiologically impacted material is taken apart and some of it's buried and some of it's in the ocean and some of it's taken apart in some buildings which are now, you know, off limits or, you know, there, there's a lot of kind of mystery. Um, some of that has been unfolded over the last 25 years as plans to, and it's been that long that, you know, there've been kind of plans to figure out what to do with the shipyard and which parts are toxic and which parts are not. Um, there are pieces of the shipyard that have been slated as safe and there's one portion of it where there's housing that's almost done, um, now, but there are lots of questions about, you know, what happens right next door to, uh, to that housing. To, so the heyday of the shipyard, though, to kind of get back to your question, is, you know, the Bayview Hunters Point was bustling. It was busy. It was, you know, it was, a, it was an area that had been mostly, um, so it had been working class already, um, Swedish, Italian, Maltese, big Maltese community in the Bayview. And then also African-American, a lot of people living in temporary war housing, which is what ultimately becomes a lot of the public housing in the Southeast. So it's built first as temporary stuff, which is part of why it was such a mess. You know, there's a lot of stories. If you start reading the history of public housing in San Francisco, you see in the 60s and early 70s that public housing is falling apart. And it's totally, you know, it's, it's, uh, it was never built to last. It wasn't built as public housing. It was built as, you know, in a sort of, in a rush um, it was built to house people temporarily, and then suddenly there's this whole new population staying. And um, so the 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 neighborhood went from this kind of very bustling place. Some of it was still falling apart last month. Yes, true. Although at this point, I believe that that none of what is still standing was built as temporary housing in the war. It was you know it was the rebuilt stuff from the 70s that's now falling apart. A later innovation of housing to fall apart exactly what's the what's the civic life like in the bayview when all this is happening in the neighborhood it's an interesting question i don't uh what are you thinking about well like you know i mean i i've sort of you know I'm, it, to, to hear you talk about it in some ways what it reminds me of is like um you know people from the university of chicago studying the south side mm -hmm. and uh you know and there's all these ethnographies of like uh uh you know the steel mills on the south side of Chicago as the you know as an economic anchor of these multi-ethnic you know with church and hometown associations and neighborhood groups and Democratic Party functionaries and all the union stuff and all these sort of conflicting things being negotiated in the building of political power mm. and, or not right um, 
of these of the communities that were drawn together to perform this economic activity. The so the the politics of the Bayview at that time were. I, it's sort of an interesting thing. Bayview politics have been, um, I think, somewhat hard to describe for a long time. And the, the power center of the black community was never in the Bayview. So even, um, you know, the Fillmore was really sort of the political center of African-American power in the city. That's where Willie Brown uh, built his power base. That's where the... There have been various pastors, you know, church leaders over the years who've become powerful in different ways, have become well-known, Amos Brown, other people before then. And almost everybody came out of the Fillmore. So the Bayview was this kind of secluded place that was a place apart, not just from the whole city, but even within what people imagined to be a community, the black community. It's imagined as one thing. At the same time, people moved back and forth. Um, one of the things that emerges in the late 60s and the 70s is that in the Bayview, a group of women start building power in a way that seems to have been different than what happened in the Fillmore District. So there were you know, women who were doing welfare rights activism um, and who then got involved in, in housing battles and health care. One of them was named Eloise Westbrook. There's a health center named after her, so you might run into her name if you're uh, wandering around South and Market. She lived in the Bayview, she lived in the Fillmore, she lived in various places, kind of back and forth. But she was one of these leaders who, you know, when she died, her funeral, um, there was a, a video from Feinstein, Diane Feinstein, Senator Feinstein. There was a commentary from Nancy Pelosi. There was uh, Willie Brown gave a speech. Multiple other, you know, uh, members of the kind of city political family, as they like to say, um, were there and were, you know, acknowledged her role. At the same time, she never had that much power. She never made much money. Um, she died just about five, six years ago in uh, low-income housing uh, with very little support. You know, she had her family and they were pretty much struggling. Um, and a lot of them are still here and she's a member of a kind of big extended family. Um, but the point of bringing her up is that she was a part of this group of women called the Big Five which was more than five people, but at some point there were five of them and so they got that name and that was sort of the, the mythic story of these women um, who played a really big role in bringing housing money. I, I love it, by the way, how, how the numbers work. You yes. know, the big five, the Chinatown Six Companies, the big four railroad barons, you know, it's, it's, it makes it so much easier to remember things like that. Yeah, that's the key. Um, yeah, so, so, so Eloise Westbrook and the big five in the Bayview were were key in bringing redevelopment money to Hunters Point Hill. So Hunters Point Hill is this place that most people in San Francisco never go, have never really seen, and are probably afraid of because of stories that they hear. Um, but if you're to go, you discover that it's a hill that's covered with these sort of incredible windy cul-de-sacs. Most of it is developed with either affordable housing or cooperative housing or public housing. And this is because of the work of the Big Five and their colleagues in the 60s and early 70s. Um, I'm, I'm trying to visualize what hill that is. Oh, okay. So it's the hill that is, if you cross 3rd Street, and it's the hill that's, be that's between kind of the center of Bayview's commercial district and the shipyard itself. Oh, so like... It's the hill that overlooks the shipyard. So if you drive out Innes... And yes. like it's the hill that's on your right yes, above in exactly. It's above with you. With the waters on your left. Yes. And then the other side of the hill is like Q 
Keith or something. Something, yeah. I don't remember which street is is there, but yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, and there's a, there's a, there's an elementary school up there. Right. Okay. Yes, and that's the school. That's the school where there had been complaints about dust from the uh, development project at the shipyard. So it's right next to the shipyard, essentially. So and it's you know has these incredible views, and it had been. Um, that's where a lot of the temporary housing had been, and that's where there is a public housing redevelopment project happening right now on the north side. Um, but th what you also find when you go to that hill is that the names of the streets, they're all named after people. And most of, many of the streets, uh, well, m most of the women involved in the Big Five and then all of their kind of their cohort have their names on a street somewhere there. Um, and it's it's sort of an unusual moment because, you know, there are lots of streets in San Francisco that are named after people and they're mostly named after people who were president, like Fillmore or who were governor or, you know, things like that. And over in Bayview, you have, you know, women who most people never would have heard of and most people won't know who they are, you know, but they're, they're, their names are on the streets. So there's Westbrook and there's, you know, Rosie and you know, various streets. Um, so that, this wasn't the dominant politics of the Bayview for very long, um, but it's one of the kind of movements that emerged. That and it seems like part of why it happened is that there was there was sort of less formal political power coming out of that neighborhood, and so there was space for these kind of poverty activists to become powerful. And there's some controversy, you know, in some of the literature about the history. You know, people will talk about, you know. Talk about them selling out or compromising too much. And it is a tricky history, but you see them taking power from the city and using the back then relatively new redevelopment agency, uh, you know, redevelopment agency that was kind of in shock from the, uh, the backlash that came at it from what happened in the Fillmore. So in the Fillmore, where 20 square blocks were cleared and something like 20,000 people lost their homes, and the drama that played out there involved people sitting in front of bulldozers and guns at public meetings and it's high, you know, very, very intense time. And and what year is that occurring? This is happening starting in the late 50s through the through the 1960s and early 70s. I mean, the, the Fillmore redevelopment, Fillmore redevelopment in general starts in the late 50s and goes until, you know, yesterday, essentially. But the dramatic time where um, where people, you know, people took, uh, where direct action actually led to some of the laws that are on the books that we take for granted now, like one for one replacement in housing, things like that, which weren't on the books at all. Um, that was all happening in the, starting in the late 50s through the kind of first half of the 1960s and then in bursts later on. But one of the things that happened in the Fillmore that is, is you know, people remember the Fillmore. If, if people know anything about Fillmore redevelopment, usually the story people know is that people were displaced and that it's... And Etta James came from there. That too. Um, but the other thing to remember about what happened in the Fillmore is that people fought back and that the fighting back made a huge difference. So that the housing developments that, you know, there's affordable and co-op housing all over that neighborhood. I will not sit here and tell you that the neighborhood was saved. Um, and the fact is, is that 20,000 people were displaced. But the outcome of the Fillmore district, it, it looks very, very different than it would have if people hadn't fought back. And, it, and the kind of blueprint 
that was created through the activism in the Fillmore has then been adopted in different ways in different housing struggles around the city. So, you know, a lot of people talk about the housing movement kind of emerging out of that moment. Um, so that is the other side of that coin. So I'm really glad you're going here because this is something I want to talk to you about. Because the in in the public conversation that's unfolding about gentrification, you know, and like we, we sort of hear that that it's not it's not a localized phenomenon that there are people facing some version of what we're dealing with in San Francisco and cities all over the world, not just in all over the U.S., but like you know, soaring rents and evictions and displacement and blah 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 and the suburbanization of poverty. And so there, you know, the w- people there's a very strong impulse to say these are the this is a, this is these are these enormous unstoppable global forces that have a level of inevitability to them. And there's nothing you can do about it. And locally, you know, like in that in that Chester Hartman book, uh, you know, what's most stuck with me about it is that that you know the Bay Area Council put together their plan for South of Market in 1954 or something, and it took them 20 years to start clearing people out of South of Market, and another 10 or 15 years to open Moscone Center, and another 20 years to finish the project. But basically what is there now is the blueprint from 1954. And that they have that kind of time frame and we are like, oh, Marcus Books is going to close tomorrow if we don't do something, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Um, but your work, you know, points to a, a sort of a concept of like, you know, agency and the ability of local actors to intervene in a different way than people are used to thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Go. <laughs> there is perhaps a a need for a long-term vision, um, whether it's in thinking about political candidates or thinking about, you know, a blueprint for a neighborhood or all of that stuff that, that whether it's entirely conscious or not, uh, what people talk about as the forces of capital, you know, what Chester Hartman's writing about in his book, City for Sale, um, which is, you know, organizing from above, you know, business, community, organizing, uh, we don't think of it that way often, but that's what's happening is people sitting down and making a plan and sticking with it more or less. Um, but it's not as as kind of monolithic as that sounds. And I think one of the things you also see in, in the story that Chester Hartman tells is that it's very uneven and it's rocky and there are moments where political agency of micro communities, you know, has some effect. Um, although his, you know, his conclusion in, the, in that book in the end is that, you know, capital kind of wins. That's what he says in the la- in the, cha- the kind of concluding chapter, even though he's showed a story where there are moments of kind of openings for political power from below. Um, so I, I don't I think that I think that the story of San Francisco is this story of back and forth and that what makes it San Francisco is that there has been both. There have been both tendencies. People are often like, whoa, San Francisco has, you know, big money in politics. Well, yeah. And, you know, the reason San Francisco's labor movement became so powerful in the late 19th century, so this is like, you know, ancient history again, is because the capitalists were powerful. You know, there's a lot of pressure from above. That's not the whole story, but that's a piece of it. And people responded. And, you know, so there's been this back and forth. Um, and in the late 19th century, the San Francisco labor movement completely made its bones on the backs of anti-Chinese racism. That too. 
That's another very important part of the story that, you know, so it wasn't just about responding, but it was responding in a strategic way that was uh, class and race, in entirely class and race non-neutral, right? So it was, you know, racist and um, built around forcing the Chinese to do certain work and keeping them from other work. Um, so that's, that's, you know, there are those realities in the history of what we think of as progressivism. Um, but I've lost, lost the thread for sure. <laughs> Agency. Agency. Pe people can intervene in, in, in the process of development and creating urban spaces. Yeah, I mean, so, so one of the tragedies, I think, you know, that there's a lot of anger at redevelopment agencies in California, and there has been for some time. And, and so when uh, Governor Brown moved to shut down redevelopment agencies, there was a lot of support from people in communities that had been kind of crushed by those agencies over the years. But without them, you know, the, the thing about a redevelopment agency that's public is that it at least there's some space where you can influence it. And the San Francisco story shows that that has been true, never to the extent that uh, some communities wanted or most community, many communities wanted, but that as a public agency, there are meetings that you can go to and you can influence and people can get appointed to be on different commissions and boards and all of that stuff. And there's, there's, there's spaces for hope. It doesn't mean that, you know, there's, there's certainly no automatic way that communities build political power. But without the public agency, you don't have that at all. Um, so that's one of the things that I've, I've wound up looking at a lot in, in the history of development politics in this city is that um, is, is the ways that people have used public agencies to kind of create more space. And it's, you know, it's very going very out of fashion. You know, public is, is the, you know, the, the move away from the public has been the move of our society since the 1970s. And so in the, it, it's, it's, very, um, it's very challenging to both convince people and th that it's a good idea to, you know, fund public agencies, public space, um, but but also to, you know, w w one of the w one of the ways that California has been starved, right, is through uh, Prop 13's tax freeze, right. So since 1978, um, we've we've kind of hamstrung communities, making it harder and harder to fund public schools, harder and harder to um, to kind of making, making uh, California's kind of turn to the private sector more and more to do what needs to be done. And so there's both a fiscal reality and, and this goes along with you know, federal policy of cutting public money for housing and all of those sorts of things. And then there's a neoliberalization of our outlook People think of themselves as independent actors um, and less and less as part of communities and part of organizations and things like that. But in San Francisco, you have all of these pockets where that's not true and where there is both resistance to that and people trying to rebuild some sense of community and a sense of political organizing. Labor is sometimes a place where that's happening. Um, it looks like you have something to say. Always. Always. But <laughs> with mixed results yes. is what I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's where it's tricky. So, so when you ask about agency, the answer is complicated because, because I, th because I think of that some of the things that you've experienced as an organizer yourself that, you know, that it's, there are, there are kind of spaces of hope and then there's so much pressure in the other direction that, um, 
that it's a slow and uneven process. Um, is there, I mean, is there something that you think of as like a best practices model for a successful local level intervention and capitalist development? How to move towards a way that, that you invite development and investment without displacement. So if you make no displacement a bottom line, um, when you're doing your smart growth project, when you're doing your, um, whatever you're doing and that, and if you make that the bottom line, then it, it reshapes every project, right? Because you know what in in uh, Plan Bay Area was this big regional plan that came out a couple of years ago, and it was fought uh, from both ends of the political spectrum. Kind of hated the Tea Party, hated it, and the um, progressive development folks hated it. And then in the end, you know, the compromise that came out in some ways had some good stuff. It still allowed displacement in service of what's talked about as smart growth, which means dense. Um, putting lots of people close to transit corridors so people get on the train more, get on the bus more instead of driving. Um, I think that while there's still displacement in the package and while you're still putting, and when you're putting the affordable housing, you know, on the edges of cities where uh, sea level rise isn't being taken into consideration, you know, things like that, that, you know, as long as we keep doing things like that, we're kind of stumbling around and, and not coming up with solutions that are, that are lasting. So if no displacement is a factor, if acknowledging the realities of climate change, you know, this is a really big one that we rarely talk about in affordable housing circles, I think, or maybe people do and they just don't talk about it to me. Um, but that, you know, that, that the reality of climate change and what that's going to do to the shape and size of San Francisco, of Oakland, you know, any coastal city, <coughs> um, has to be taken into consideration, should be part of our development policy. Right now, the climate conversation is happening in one room and the housing conversation is happening in another room. In San Francisco, the progressives are cast as reflexive anti-development, like like no, no increase in density, no growth, nothing new. Uh, historically, in thinking about the the neighborhoods that you've studied, is that accurate? And is there a sort of progressive development density agenda that exists out there? Mm, this is the question. So it's it's become sort of popular lately to say, um, to say, Along the lines of what you just said, that that you know progressives hate density, but that a real progressive agenda would be you know build a million housing units and and then watch the price of housing drop, and the problem there are various problems with that. One of them is is I mean the the question is what kind of city you want to have, and because that question ends up being at the core, you know, it, it's the progressive conversation tends to be about what kind of city you want to have. Um, but the resistance to development, you know, that San Francisco is somehow famous for is true in pockets. There are neighborhoods where there's a lot of resistance to development where people like their um, tiny little yards and, you know, like their space and like the kind of livability of, uh, their low density neighborhoods. There are a lot of high density neighborhoods in the city too. Lots of San Francisco is 
is very high density. Um, it's interesting that the more conservative parts of the city are also the least dense. I would support a lot of high-rise. Have high you rise walked around Knob Hill lately? No, but I was thinking I would support a lot of high-rise rental development in St. Francis Woods. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lots of it. All 50 right story there. buildings. Concentrated. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. If you're thinking, I mean, the other thing is, so it's it's become more pop- popular to say, you know, go for the big density. I don't usually hear those same conversations involving a really coherent discussion of infrastructure, water. We live in a deeply drought-plagued state, and that even though it's been raining for a couple of weeks now, and that feels nice, um, that's not really changing. Um, the you know the notion of a totally sustainable city is possibly sort of an oxymoron. You know, cities are. It's tricky because on the one hand, you do want people to concentrate in a place to use fewer resources. On the other hand, cities use tremendous uh, resources. And if you bring in a million, you know, enough, enough housing to host a million new residents, you know, how are you, how does that fit in with the, you know, does that mean a bunch of new money for schools and for sewers and again, water, <laughs> where is it coming from? Um, all of that kind of stuff. The city would feel very different. Maybe that's what has to happen. Um, but for me, the you know, again, I think the bottom line question has to be what kind of housing is it and who gets to live in it. So if you build a million units, are they all top of the market? You know, whatever the market will bear, um, it will be. It will continue to be a part of a process that is, and has been for. A long time displacing people, um, so that's a, a kind of a non-answer to your question. There's right. I mean, it's. Uh, I keep asking, inviting anyone to send me evidence that would give me any. You know, I'm willing to be persuaded by evidence if someone had some data that would be persuasive about how many, you know, market rate million dollar condos would need to be created to make housing more affordable for elementary school teachers. Uh, you know, I, my guess is that there is no number of million dollar condos that makes housing more affordable. Yeah, not having done the study, I'm going to guess that you're right. Um, but And also, you know, if you look at what's happening in other cities, is it, there's a growth in the, uh, you know, kind of pied-a-terre, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, but, there, you know, there's a growth in the use of cities as vacation spots um, by the wealthy who are need somewhere to put their money. And so if you build million dollar condos, most of them are two million dollar condos. you know they will be um, investment properties um, by people all around the world who are looking for someplace. you know the, the kind of global one percent that Piketty writes about. They're looking for a place to put their money. Right now they're putting a lot of it in Manhattan and some of them are putting it here and they'll be happy to put more of it here. Right. I mean, was that the, the 48 Hills piece that half of those new fancy condos are owned by people who live elsewhere. Yeah, I don't remember the numbers exactly, but yeah, that you know, they're and that's something Tim Redmond's been working on for a long time is trying to figure out, you know, who are these folks who live in new housing mm-hmm. and not to vilify them, these are people, but if it turns out that they're not living here full time, then it does change the kind of the dynamic of what you think is happening when you say yes to new housing. Uh, so 
how do you feel about the Google bus as a as a do you think it's accurate as a symbol of a problem and a strategic target? The so-called Google bus, so you know the tech shuttles that go to lots of uh, tech campuses, has become a really potent symbol um, of a lot of problems. A lot of people think of it as perhaps a symbol of uh, what's kind of thought of as a you know a tech takeover of San Francisco culturally and uh, and economically. But it, you know, it's also a symbol of our failure of building a really good regional transit system, you know. And so, it points to some of the problems, you know, the the, the reason that that the shuttle buses and the Uber Lyft complex, all of that stuff, the reason that stuff is emerging, is because there is a need for some sort of service. Um, so that's one thing is that you know I think we should be looking at that and saying, oh wow, yeah, so we really need, you know. We should have been investing, as lots of people have been arguing, in a major expansion of Caltrain, which is much uh, less expensive expensive to expand than BART. Um, you know, that expansion should have been happening long ago. Um, you know, we used to have trains all over the city that we need to put back in. Um, but, you know, if it, if it didn't take so long to get from one end of San Francisco to the other, then there wouldn't be such pressure to uh, bring in these private shuttles. The shuttles, you know, represent... Um, it, I mean, there were it makes sense if you know if you're living in a neighborhood where you see them go by and where you know I used to live in a part of the mission district where I remember when the you know first I would see one or two a day and then I would see two or three a day and then there were more and then there were more and you start to have the it, it does you know they're very large they're too big for our city streets um, there are a lot of ways that they're problematic as a form, you know, in that particular, and they, you know, had, we're using public bus stops for free now for a nominal fee, all of that stuff. So that's all been problematic. Um, but they do represent, you know, this kind of failure of public policy too at the same time. So I think it's important to remember that, that, you know, when we say we don't want the shuttles, it should possibly be connected to a kind of larger kind of regional thinking about, you know, there, there is a San Francisco, um, I think San Franciscans don't often enough think about the region. They think of San Francisco. And this is not a critique of, of the shuttle activists in particular at all, but you know, people who think about policy in the city um, need to think more regionally. Spur is now doing that. So Spur, which was formed originally to support uh, urban renewal when redevelopment was called urban renewal, and which now has kind of morphed in lots of different ways, you know, has an office in San Jose, is opening an office in Oakland in a month, I think it is. And at the same time, so other people are doing that too. I think there, there's a, a merger of, I think it's, is it Casa Justa and, uh, um, and Power, right? So creating a kind of regional left um, organization too. I think there needs to be more of that in general. I mean, it, that was a it was a very conscious move by SEIU to sponsor simultaneous minimum wage initiatives in San Francisco and Oakland, which was um, a great move. Yeah, that's the way to do that kind of thing. Um, you know, I mean, particularly you know, on this, it's sort of like some of the stuff that there's not there's not a a public framework. Like you know, we're I mean, we there's th there are housing this whole patchwork of 
local governments between San Francisco and San Jose that argue against that kind of thinking, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though there's a sort of natural existing whatever watershed of housing or ecosystem kind of type of structure. Um, do you feel like do you feel like there's a there's a argument for San Francisco exceptionalism? Is there anything special about San Francisco that mm. do, wouldn't that there wouldn't be some version of of the the kind of analysis you're doing that could as well be done about any other city? Yes, though I want to call it Bay Area exceptionalism. Okay. If I can say it, because because there's so or or when you talk about San Francisco. Um, I want people to think about the Bay region and not just about the 49-ish square-ish miles um, of the city of, and county of San Francisco. But there, there is something um, different that's happened here historically. There, you know, the, there are, for various reasons, there have been just sort of these many waves of um, big change and innovation. You know, some of it has to do with uh, our position on the coast. Some of it has to do with, <clears throat> you know, initially our relationship to the gold rush and all of the economic kind of activity of the second half of the 19th century. Um, but the we've seen, you know, round after round after round of of kind of pick up the city and shake it and transform it through capital investment in different ways, whether it was through the gold rush or through um, wartime investment or through uh, the dot-com booms and there's other moments too. But we've, but there's all along there's been these kind of cultural intersections. And I don't exactly know why or how culture works, but, you know, why is it that um, that this ends up being a place where you know, that's a center for anti-war movements and that's a center for, um, used to be a center for, for kind of musical innovation, you know, San Francisco rock and roll. Um, so, so there's something unique that has happened here. It's not, you know, it's certainly culturally and economically, it's, it's, uh, often people, you know, if, if I tell people that I'm, that I study the Bay Area, they're like, oh, why, why would you do that? Because you can't, you know, make any conclusions that have anything to do with anywhere else. And that's actually not true. One of the things that I think is important to, to remember about the Bay Area is that we're experiencing a lot of the same, um, a lot of the same things that other cities experience, but it's at hyperspeed, and then there are unique characteristics. So, and some of that has to do with why, you know, people, why do people come to a place? You know, why did you come to the Bay Area? You were born here, so that's a good, good reason. But part of why I came here in the 90s um, had to do with, people I knew and, and, you know, an image that I had of the place. Right. And so the, you, you moved as a white woman who had gone to Hampshire college. That's true. From who was living in the mission and then moved to Oakland. Yeah. You were part of that thing. Uh, and you know, I'm like a, a little bit on the other side of that as someone who grew up in San Francisco. Like I just, you know, I just bristle a little bit when I run into people who are like, you know, I moved here five years ago because of an idea I had in my head and mm-hmm. I'm mad that someone is showing up with a different idea than my idea. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, fuck yourself. You know, like, I don't care about you that. <laughs> like, so, I mean, there's, you know what I mean? That, it, But I also realize that I'm probably full of shit in that sense too. Like, why does my, 
why is the idea that my parents have more valuable than right you know that's well and we don't own the place right but but if your relationship to a place is one of caring and cultivating and connecting then there's something different that happens if you're just if your priority and the way you experience places is about consumption and taking then and and that's the conflict that we have in San Francisco and the, and what has made the bay area special is that there has been a strong um, wave over and over of people who are interested in connection and cultivation of place and of and of you know values of you know what, what uh, some people talk about as the use values of the place instead of the exchange values of the place. So being in San Francisco, not just because you can make a bunch of money or buy and sell real estate, but because you're interested in something you know special about the community, whatever that is. And there's so many communities here, right? There's not just one way to see the city. But what I think ends up being enraging to people like you who've been here forever, your experience of forever is is when people come in and sort of are fixed on the notion of what the place seemed to be like when they got here and they want to own that and freeze it in time. And, you know, communities change. People change. Things evolve. But there's a difference between the change of life that may happen and and uh, buying and selling a place. Yeah. What would you say? The bulldozers. And the bulldozers, for sure. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, it's... Um, I... I uh, I've been saying this on stage and it's not like necessarily the biggest joke, but I feel like it's, it's an important thing that I want to contribute to the conversation is like that there are people who are from San Francisco who hate the techies and want them all to go away. And I feel like I want everyone to feel welcome here. And I've always like, that's what San Francisco has always been. And I don't feel like, you know, necessarily someone who wants to come here to invent something is a worse person than someone who wants to come here to, you know, get mm -hmm. away from poverty in Latin America. Like, I don't think like the material impetus for the move, but you know, uh, so it's just like, but I just can't imagine looking at a place and being, I, I it seems to me how yeah, that place looks cool. I want to go over there and be part of that cool thing rather than, Hey, there's a place and I'm going to go fix it up. Like that's what seems like a sociopathic behavior. I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to that place and terraform it. You know, it's just like, it seems crazy to me. I don't understand that what goes on in the brain of someone who was like, I'm going to go to go somewhere and change it. I mean, the, and the, just since you said, you know, the, I just, just want to throw in the, you know, the question of, you know, people hating the techies, um, that they're, you know, San Francisco has had this kind of tech, uh, San Francisco has been high tech for a really long time. And there's a difference between, um, you know, what's happening right now is a sort of over concentration of an industry where people are making a lot of money. And so there's the kind of cultural and political stuff that comes with that, where suddenly there's new people making a ton of money who are entirely focused on their work. And there's various cultures of those corp of the corporations that people are working for. But this is also a place where technology has been, you know, open source. It's a center for open source technology people build and share so much tech in the bay area you know between berkeley and stanford those are kind of major research hubs for tech um, a lot of those people have been making all of the you know creative commons and the internet archive is here and that you know so that's not the dominant force of the moment and it's not what people experience every day when you see a google bus go by but i think it's important to remember that you know this idea of the kind of um 
the terrible newcomer who's not connecting to the place. That it, at the moment it's about a particular industry and that'll change and then there'll be another one. Um, right. I don't know why I should be more. I mean, I get that it's new money and whatever, but I don't know why I would be more mad at the tech people than at the Bechtels or whatever, you know, and um, like and pr- I find the tech people obnoxious, too, mostly because of how they occupy public space in a way that feels like there's not room for anybody else in it. But I also am self-aware enough to know that that should probably shouldn't be the basis of a political position. <laughs> And that usually when people say, I want to, you know, take back our city, those are usually not people that I agree with. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not usually on the same side as, you know, I want to take America back. I don't usually, you know, those those people tend to give me the heebie-jeebies. Those people don't usually want you around. They usually (laughs) don't want, yeah. I have usually what they're trying to take it back from. I like to spend a lot of time wandering around cities and looking at buildings and sidewalks and trying to figure out their history just by looking at them, whether you know much about the place or not. And there's ways you can do that. It's one of the, so you can learn about, you know, when certain building materials were used and what kinds of people might have used them and what it says about what kind of capital investment must have passed through a place. And then you can learn about the particular histories of the place and what the struggles were like, who wanted what and who won in the end and all of that stuff. But it's visible in the landscape. So you can you can but keeping that that um, kind of practice alive is something that I think is important. So not just reading books, but also walking around and being in a place and talking to people and knowing people. I think that that's it's a it's part of organizing and it's also just part of being a good urban person. I think and and for me it's part of how so like you said I came from far away to San Francisco. I was a newcomer at one point um, and now I'm a newcomer in in Oakland in a gentrifying neighborhood and I am uh, a part of that one way or another. And for me, one of the solutions to being sort of a person on this kind of historical stage where this is happening is to talk to people and not just, you know, so I've learned a lot about my neighborhood history, but me just knowing it isn't enough. You know, I, I have to know my neighbors. I'm getting better at that. And then beyond talking to them, you know, then that's how you, I think, can sort of collectively reshape a place. Um, but you know, it's not easy. We do a lot of, you know, everybody's kind of in their atomized little world. But I think that that's in addition to knowing where a place has come from, being a part of where it's going and not just watching it, not just consuming it, consuming from it. We did it. Thanks. We said a lot of words. We said a lot of words. We told 3,200 stories. <laughs> Pretty much. Thanks, dude. Thank you. That was the NATO Sessions with geographer Rachel Brahinsky at USF. Uh, you can listen, subscribe, share, review the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher Radio. The NATO Sessions is edited by Steve Bissinger, produced by Dan Wolf, theme music by DJ Real. You can see me every week with The Business at the Hemlock Tavern. Find me on Twitter at NATO Green. We'll see you next time. Thanks a lot.